0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics Part 8, More Evidence for the Resurrection. Because secular historians don't accept the inspiration of the Bible, they don't trust the Gospels as reliable witnesses about Jesus. Consequently, they've come up with various criteria of authenticity to sift the sayings and deeds recorded in the Gospels into historical and mythical categories. Last time, we saw how Jesus' resurrection still passes with flying colors when employing such a skeptical approach. This time, we'll discuss another historical consideration under the able guidance of British scholar and author N.T. Wright. He enumerates seven mutations within Judaism that cry out for an explanation. In the end, history seems to have a hole in it about the size and shape of an actual resurrection. The most plausible explanation is, in fact, that God really did intervene in the middle of history and perform a miracle. If you would like to take this class for credit Please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Apologetics Part Eight, More Evidence for the Resurrection. All right, so if you want to convince an atheist, an agnostic, or somebody that doesn't believe in miracles of the resurrection of Jesus, you can't just turn to the Bible and say, it says it here. What you have to do is play the game by their rules and if using only their rules you're still able to sustain your point and establish that the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of the facts that they all agree with us on, then you have something really solid and helpful. So these are criteria that skeptical historians use to study Jesus people that generally just don't believe in miracles. And so what they'll say is, if we have an incident that's multiply attested, that we can find multiple attestation for, it's more likely to be historical. It's more likely to be authentic. If we have some incident in the life of Jesus and we only have one witness or one attestation to that incident, one source, then we're not really confident that that happened. But if we have two or three independent sources, then we're going to be stronger in our our tendency to lean on that. Next, we have the criterion of dissimilarity. Dissimilarity is the idea that uh, something related to the historical Jesus is dissimilar from Jewish, the Jewish historical context and later Christian tradition. Okay, So if something is dissimilar to both what Jews believed and later Christians believed, then it's more likely to be authentic. I'll give you the example of the title, Son of Man. Jews didn't typically run around saying, I am the Son of Man, or speak of themselves in the third person. The Son of Man is looking forward to what comes next. Well, I'm just talking about myself, aren't I? But Jesus would do that all the time. So it's dissimilar from his Jewish context. And later Christianity did not make a big deal out of that title of Jesus. You don't see in later Christian writings a lot of people saying son of man, son of man. No, it's all son of God, it's Christ, and then later on once the Trinity idea gets going, it's God, right? So son of man is not a title you find a lot in either way, so it's more likely to be historically authentic. That's how the criterion of dissimilarity works. Then you have the criterion of embarrassment. If something happened, like say Jesus rebuking Peter, that would be embarrassing, right? Because isn't Peter supposed to be like this awesome Christian who's, he's the first Pope for crying out loud, and yet he denied Jesus three times? That's embarrassing. Why would you include that if it wasn't true? Ah, there it is. So it's more likely to be true if it is embarrassing. So that's how they're reasoning through things. And then Aramaisms are instances when either we find an Aramaic phrase in the Gospels or we can back translate from Greek into Aramaic and we notice a linguistic pun or a play on words. I'll give you an example. Jesus said, you're straining out the gnat and swallowing a camel. However, in Aramaic, the word for gnat is galma and the word for camel is gamla, right? So when you you back translate that there's like a pun in Aramaic so it's more likely that Jesus actually said those exact words than that they're just sort of summarizing what he said or making up what he said. And then the last one is coherence with authentic material. So if you've established other authentic material such as for example Jesus died by crucifixion we can establish that historically based on crazy multiple attestation. And it's totally embarrassing in the historical context to have your main leader get the electric chair, right? So um, that's well established. So other material that coheres with the idea that Jesus died by crucifixion, um, that would also be a reason to add that on. So basically what people do is they write Jesus books, Life of Jesus books, and they use these criteria and others similar to them and they reconstruct the historical Jesus using the Gospels and picking out bits and pieces of the Gospels to put together an image of Jesus that they think is more likely to be genuine than the one we find in the Bible. Obviously, as Christians, this is not a game we play, but if we're going to try to prove the resurrection of Jesus to somebody and these are their assumptions, this is their framework that they use already, we got, we're going to have to come onto their turf, play the game using their rules. And the funny thing is that when we do that, we get an actual resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Bill Craig was doing there. I don't know if you heard like some of these terms, like multiple attestation. Things that are earlier are more likely to be correct as well. Less likely to have legendary development and so on. So uh, I just want you to be aware of that. This is more of a advanced Thing that you would learn in like a New Testament class, probably not in like a level one New Testament class, but more of a grad school New Testament class. But it's out there and it's something you need to be aware of. And it comes into play for this resurrection business. All right, Paula Fredrickson is a professor I had at Boston University. She is a uh, kind of like an agnostic Jew. She was a Catholic, but she converted to Judaism, and I don't think she believes in miracles. Coming from that perspective that she has, her view historically, as a historian, is that there are two indisputable facts, two facts that nobody could disagree with. And one is, Jesus died by crucifixion, and the other is that none of Jesus' followers were crucified. So I think that's helpful that even from somebody that is coming at it from a very skeptical point of view, they're still willing to say that. All right, so. Now we come to N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright identifies seven mutations about belief in resurrection from before Christianity to after Christianity starts, okay? So, yeah, yeah. So I'll just give you an example. Jews tend to have lots of different beliefs about resurrection, okay? But after the Jesus movement begins and you know, the whole resurrection events happen, right? Christians don't have a wide spectrum of belief about the resurrection. It's narrow, it's clear. Christians suddenly have, have confidence in one way of thinking about resurrection, whereas, and I'm talking about Christian Jews, right? Everybody's Jewish in this, in this context here. So like Pharisees had one view about resurrection and then there might be multiple views within the Pharisees themselves. And then the Sadducees had a different view about resurrection. They didn't believe in it. That's why they were so Sadducee. And then you had Hellenistic Jews like Philo, who had a totally different, Platonized view of resurrection, right? So you have all these different ideas, but within Christianity, once Christianity gets started, there's only one view about resurrection. It's not like Christians are disagreeing with each other about what resurrection is. Number two is that rather than resurrection being some sort of peripheral idea, Okay, how many instances of resurrection do you find in the Old Testament? A couple. Just a few, right? There's not, there's not too many. You have it in Isaiah, you have it in Ezekiel, you have it in Daniel, Job. I mean depending on how you interpret these passages there you know might be some debate on that, but at most four or five times in the Old Testament. If you look up the word resurrection and you limit your search to the Old Testament, you know how many search finds you get? Zero. Zero. If you search for the word resurrection in the New Testament, you get 43. So resurrection, resurrection went from this idea that's kind of like, you know, it's, it's there, but it's not, it's not like the central focus to becoming, yes, this is really important. Resurrection is significant for our belief system, right? So that's a mutation, right? It was not all that talked about, and now it's a main topic of conversation yeah yeah so there, there there's basically no spectrum of belief about the resurrection within Christianity you know Christians basically have one view of resurrection whereas before that in Judaism you find multiple views of resurrection here you have resurrection as a central belief instead of a peripheral belief number three is that there's debate as to what the resurrection body would be like among ancient Judaism, right? Within Christianity, the resurrection body is transformed physical body. In other words, it's not some sort of spirit body that doesn't have matter in it. It's a body that uses up the matter of the, the old body, except it has some significant upgrades, right? And that's the Christian view on it. Whereas before it, there are different options available. It's kind of similar to one. Number four, Christians saw resurrection as having been split into at least two stages. Okay? Right? Ancient Judaism looks at resurrection as a single event that happens at the end of history to everyone. Christians say, no. Resurrection happens early to the Messiah, and then it happens for everyone. Right? Right? Now you have multiple stages of resurrection instead of, so that's another mutation about their belief in resurrection. Number five, the resurrection means that God's future, the resurrection is always associated in the Old Testament with the kingdom, with the coming age, has arrived early in the person of Jesus. This means that now his followers are invited to get on board with this by implementing the achievement to Jesus in anticipation of the final resurrection by living righteously and functioning as restorative agents in the fallen world. Resurrection ethics. In other words, people start to make arguments and act as if because Jesus was raised from the dead, I should live differently. That's another mutation. Uh, Number six, the resurrection is now thought of as a fresh metaphor attached to baptism. Baptism is a metaphor for resurrection, whichever way you want to put that. That's a new idea. That that wasn't a Jewish idea before that, and now it is a Jewish idea among followers of Christ. And last of all, first century Judaism did not expect Messiah to die, much less rise from the dead. Even so, the Christians were convinced that on the basis of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection that he was God's Messiah. And so here we have resurrection proves Jesus is Messiah. Are we okay with that? I'm just going to recommend a few books to you. If you're into this stuff, there's so much out there. It's like almost embarrassing how many good books are out there. We have The Case for Christ, where a guy named Lee Strobel goes around and interviews a bunch of Bible-believing Christian scholars as to why they believe in Jesus. And some, especially certain parts of that book are phenomenal on this. Other books by, I'll just list a few other scholars, Gary Habermas has done a ton of work on the resurrection of Jesus. Mike Lycona, I think that's how you spell his name, has written books, Case for the Resurrection, for example. N.T. Wright, William Craig, those two both wrote books on the resurrection. Timothy Keller, yeah, he's got a good book on reasons to believe in God, and he does some, some work on the resurrection there, too. So what I want to do now depending on how you all feel, is watch Cementy write. All right, so I'm not, I'm not planning on showing you this entire video. It's I'm, yeah, it's an hour and a half. But I'm gonna show you part of it, just so you can hear the way he reasons. These are his seven mutations, so he's gonna go ahead and explain them to you much better than I just did. I'm just giving you like the shortest, simplest, little summary I could possibly think of, right? He's gonna go and he's gonna be flowery and he's going to explain and be British and you're gonna love it. All right. So let's go ahead and give that a shot.
1: I was in the House of Lords last Tuesday before setting off to come here in a debate which was started and wound up by the Lord Chancellor which is one of the great offices of state in the British Parliament and when the Lord Chancellor is on official duty he wears some very splendid ancient robes which make him look like a figure from some century long past and it was about 25-30 years ago I guess when Lord Hailsham was the Chancellor of, uh, of England that one day he came out of his office in the House of Lords dressed in all his finery and in the corridor, and there are many complex corridors around Parliament, he came face to face with a party of American tourists who were being shown around the place. And at the same time, behind the tourists, there opened another door, and a man emerged, was a member of Parliament by the name of Neil Martin, who was MP for Buckingham at the time, and he was a friend of Hailsham's. And Hailsham wanted to attract Neil Martin's attention, so he raised his hand and shouted, Neil! And of course, the tourists all did. (laughs) So you see the kind of reflections that an Englishman has coming from the House of Lords to address a bunch of Americans on a Friday evening in Roanoke. Thank you for your welcome. It's great to be here. Maggie and I are enjoying your wonderful hospitality. I have been asked to address tonight one of the most important questions that anyone can ever ask that of what happened on the first Easter day. Perhaps predictably we have to fight our way through some undergrowth even to get to the question itself. Part of the difficulty is the massive confusion that exists in our society today about the whole question of what the word resurrection itself actually means. And that is part of the confusion about what death itself is and about what we might be supposed to believe happens to people after their death. I observed this confusion in my own country in a number of incidents over many years. Think of the reaction of the public to the death of Princess Diana in 1997. It was a huge outpouring of grief. And I think I went on around the world. And people when they wrote things in books of remembrance and when they spoke on the radio or spoke to me as a pastor, they said all sorts of extraordinary things. God didn't have enough angels in heaven, so he called Diana to go and be another one. Or when I look up at the sky tonight, there'll be a new star in the heavens and that will be Diana. And I wondered, did they actually mean that? Was that metaphorical? Did they actually mean it literally? There's an enormous amount of confusion about death and what it means and what happens afterwards. And similar stories could be multiplied endlessly and you will all have your own, I expect. And over in uh, this part of the world, I know that there are some people who report sightings of Elvis and that kind of thing. There's, There's no accounting for what strange things people believe. And the enormous tragedies of September the 11th, of that Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, the New Orleans floods the following year, suddenly when people are faced with death and destruction, they start to ask questions, and they assume they know what the church says about these things, but often they really don't. The church has talked endlessly about going to heaven as the ultimate goal of human existence. But many today find that the idea of sitting around on clouds, plucking at harps, or simply resting all the time, as some hymns imply, doesn't appeal today as it seems to have done to our forebears in an era of hard physical work for most people. And our hymns and our prayers have constantly emphasized, fit us for heaven to live with thee there and he leads his children on to the place where he has gone. You open the hymn book almost at random and you'll find that that's the end of the game is just to go to heaven. And so when people open the Gospels and find in Matthew's Gospel Jesus talking about people inheriting the kingdom of heaven, they assume within our contemporary culture that this means going to heaven when they die. But it doesn't. As Matthew makes quite clear, The kingdom of heaven is a way of talking about the sovereign rule of the one true God coming to pass on earth as in heaven. It's nothing to do with life after death or nothing very much. It's got everything to do with the purposes of God for the transformation of the life before death. Life here and now and at the same time. For what I have called, and I think this is very clear, but people often find it confusing, so I'll explain it. What I have called life after life after death. Life after life after death. What is heaven after all in the Bible? Heaven is not an ultimate goal in the Bible, heaven is part of God's created reality, it is God's space. And the point is that one day this heavenly reality is to be united with our world, with earth, transforming both of them in the present. That's what we're promised in the Old Testament and in the New. And if that is what we're promised, then the life that people will enjoy in that future world is not purely a heavenly existence. It's an existence in God's new heavens and new earth joined together. A life, a bodily life, after whatever sort of life after death there may be. So how can we get our ideas sorted out? And how can we discover in the middle of all of this exactly what did happen three days after Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified? To get at this, I find it helpful to go back and ask, what did people in that world believe about death and what happened afterwards? Where did the early Christians' belief about life after death fit on the spectrum of what other people thought and believed? Now, I've set this out in much more length in my book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's the longest of the books that I've written that uh, Professor McDermott was mentioning. It's uh, just under 800 pages, I think, of text. And I have to tell you that when I gave it to my father, who was, I think, 84 at the time when it came out, he read it in three days flat, bless him. He's retired long since and has got nothing to do but read theology all day. What a wonderful life. And at the end of the three days, he phoned me up and he said, I finished it. And I said, you what? He said, I finished it. He said, and i tell you what, I really started to enjoy it after about page 600. So... (laughs) One of, one of the most interesting sideways compliments I've ever had. I, I said it's like, a, it's like a tree. It's got a large root system, and only with that root system is the trunk of the tree going to stand up. And so I'm just going to give you a tiny vignette of what's going on in that root system, because you only understand what the disciples meant when they said Jesus is risen from the dead when you get your head around what that language meant in that culture. Now, what, did, what was resurrection and life after death doing in the ancient world, ancient pagan and Judaism? Well, as far as the ancient pagan world was concerned, the road to the underworld ran only one way. Death was all-powerful. You could neither escape it in the first place nor break its power once it had come. And everybody in the ancient pagan world knew there was, in fact, no answer to death. The ancient pagan world then divided into those who, like the shades in Homer, might have wanted to come back and get a new body, but knew that they weren't going to. And those who, like Plato's philosophers, didn't want a body again, because being a disembodied soul, getting rid of the body, was a much better option. Within that world, the word resurrection never meant life after death. Resurrection always referred to a new bodily life back in this world again, after whatever had happened to you immediately after death, life after life after death. Now, the ancient pagans didn't believe that resurrection was possible. You know that story of the underworld, uh, going down to the underworld to find your lost bride. Eurydice, the lost bride. And Orpheus goes down to find her. And he's told that he's allowed to lead her back up from the underworld, but on one condition. While they're walking back up this long pathway, if he turns and looks to see his beloved again, then she'll be gone. So he goes down and he says, yes, okay, that's fine. And he's bringing her back. And halfway up this long path, His desire for his beloved gets the better of him, and he turns and he looks, and she's gone. And you see, it's a sad old myth, but it's a way of telling the story which says death is in fact a one-way street. We can imagine what it might be like for somebody to come back from the dead, but we know it doesn't happen. Actually, I found a poem recently, which was a feminist retelling of that story in which Eurydice all the way up was whispering sweet nothings to him to make him look back because the last thing she wanted was a man in her life again. <laughs> so resurrection was a way of saying that's what would be a new bodily life after life after death, but we know it doesn't happen. Now, the ancient pagans knew about ghosts and spirits and visions and hallucinations. There's a lot of literature which describes those things. That's not what somebody means by resurrection. If you say it's a ghost, that's not the same thing as a resurrection. Resurrection means bodies. What about the ancient Jewish world? Now, there's a spectrum of belief there, too. Some Jews in the first century agreed with those pagans who denied any future life, especially a reembodied one. The Sadducees, the first century Jewish aristocracy, are famous for taking this position. No future life, certainly not an embodied one. Other Jews, like the philosopher Philo, agreed with those pagans the Platonists, who believed in a glorious but disembodied future for a soul. But most first century Jews, so it appears, believed in an eventual resurrection. That is, God would look after the soul after death until the time when God remade the whole world, when, of course, he would give his people new bodies to live within that new world, life after life after death. That is the world within which early Christianity burst upon the scene as a new thing and yet not entirely new. What did the early Christians believe about what happened after death? What what was their future hope? Where does resurrection fit in? How does it work? The early Christians didn't just believe in life after death. Often today, people talk about believing in heaven and hell as one of the key shibboleths of being a Christian. I should apologize, by the way, to the signer. I have no idea how you sign the word shibboleth, but I'm sure you're doing it really well. (laughs) Madam, had I known you were gonna be there, I would have given you a a copy of the script, and I'm sorry, there we are. Heaven and hell, however, is just a rough and ready way of saying something which in the Bible is more complex and actually more interesting. Because the early Christians don't talk much about what's going to happen immediately after they die. They talk more about the ultimate future when God's new world happens and people will be raised from the dead. When Jesus tells the brigand that he will join him in paradise next day, that very day, today you will be with me in paradise, paradise cannot be the ultimate destination. Luke 24 makes it clear that Jesus three days later is raised from the dead. He hasn't stayed in that temporary holding place. When Jesus declares in John 14 that there are many dwelling places in his father's house, the word for a dwelling place in Greek doesn't refer to your ultimate home, it refers to a temporary wayside lodging where you go and stay en route for the final destination. The early Christians held firmly to a two-step belief about the future. First, death and what lies immediately beyond. Second, a new bodily existence in a newly remade world. Now, there's nothing remotely like this in paganism. This belief is as Jewish as you can get. But within this Jewish belief, there are seven, no fewer than seven, early Christian modifications, each of which crops up in a diverse range of Christian writers right across the first two centuries AD. And this is more important because what people believe about life after death tends to be very conservative. When you're faced with bereavement or grief, people lurch back for safety to what they have heard or learned from their families, from their traditions. But all the early Christians articulate a belief which in these seven ways is quite new. And this is the sharp point at which the historian has to ask, why? Why did did they do it like this? Each of these, like everything I'm saying tonight, could be spelt out at much more length and indeed is in the big book to which I've already referred. So I'm just going to summarize them. The first of these modifications is that within early Christianity, there is virtually no spectrum of belief about life beyond death. There isn't a a spectrum in, in which different people believe different things. Christianity looks to this extent like a variety of Pharisaic Judaism, not like Sadducees, not like Philo, certainly not like the pagans. The New Testament mentions some people who are muddled at this point some who think the resurrection, the resurrection has already happened, but those models don't seem to have lasted very long. We have good evidence for early Christian debates on all sorts of topics, some of them fierce and sharply polarized, but virtually you, virtual unanimity about resurrection. That's the first modification. The second modification is that in Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism of that period, resurrection is important, but it's not that important. Lots of lengthy Jewish works of the time never mention the question, let alone the answer. It's still difficult to find out what the Dead Sea Scrolls thought about resurrection or not. People believed in resurrection, but it wasn't at the center of their thoughts. But in early Christianity, Resurrection has moved from the circumference to the center. You can't imagine Paul or John without it. Belief in bodily resurrection, interestingly, was one of the two things that the pagan doctor Galen in the second century knew about the Christians. So this funny group of people, and they they, they they actually believe in resurrection. The other thing he knew about them, interestingly, was their remarkable sexual restraint. For them, resurrection was absolutely central. The third mutation within the Jewish worldview at this point has to do with something with more organic about what resurrection actually means. In Judaism, nobody is very precise about what sort of a body people are going to have when they are raised from the dead. There's some confusion on that. You can affirm resurrection, but it's not clear whether it's a body exactly like this one or whether it's gonna be something utterly, as we would say, supernatural and glowing or luminous or whatever. But from the start within early Christianity, it is built in as part of a belief in resurrection that the new body, though it certainly will be a body in the sense of occupying physical space and time, will be a transformed body, a body whose material created from the old material will have new properties. Particularly, it will be incorruptible, incapable of decaying or dying. That's the third mutation within the Jewish view of resurrection. The fourth mutation is that resurrection as an event has split into two. First century Jews expected the resurrection as something that would happen to all God's people at the end of time. The early Christians agreed that that would happen, but they said that it had also happened in advance to one person, Jesus, in the middle of time. There's no precedent for that in Judaism. The fifth mutation is what, in dialogue with me, the scholar and writer Dominic Crossan called collaborative eschatology. That's a wonderfully heavy-handed, clunky term. What does it mean? The early Christians believed that if resurrection had begun with Jesus and would be completed in the final great resurrection on the last day, they believed, therefore, that God had called them to work with him in the power of the Spirit in the present to implement the achievement of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final resurrection, and to do this work in personal and political life, in mission and holiness, collaborative eschatology, something which has already started to happen, God's new world, God's new creation, and God now collaborating with his people in taking that project forward. That's a new thing in Christianity. The sixth mutation is the different metaphorical use of the word resurrection. When the word resurrection is used metaphorically in Judaism, it refers to the restoration of Israel after exile, as in Ezekiel 37. But from the earliest days of Christianity, that meaning has more or less entirely disappeared, and in its place we have a new metaphorical meaning of Christianity to do with baptism, as dying and rising with Christ, And a new life of strenuous ethical obedience enabled by the Holy Spirit, a life to which the believer is then committed. Now again, metaphorical usages like that don't just happen. Somebody has reflected on what those words now have to do, the jobs required. This is a new thing from within Judaism, but a new thing that no Jews until the early Christians had ever imagined. And the seventh and last mutation from within the Jewish resurrection belief was its association with Messiahship. Nobody in Judaism had expected that the Messiah would die. So nobody imagined that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Yes, there are some Old Testament texts to which the Christians appeal, but it appears that nobody had read them in that way until the Christians came along. And this leads, you see, to a remarkable modification, not just of resurrection belief, but of messianic belief, which becomes rethought around Jesus and his death. No Jew with any first century regular understanding of messiahship could have imagined after his crucifixion that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Lord's anointed. But from very early on, the Christians said Jesus is indeed the Messiah precisely because of his resurrection. Let's just step aside from the argument for a moment, having got those seven, to make a hugely important point. You may not know it, but we have evidence of several other Jewish messianic or prophetic movements during the couple of centuries either side of Jesus' public career. Routinely, they ended with the death of the central figure. Members of the movement, always supposing they got away with their own skins, then faced a choice. If your leader has been killed, either give up the movement or get yourself another Messiah. Had the early Christians wanted to go the latter route, they had an obvious candidate. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, who was a great and devout teacher. He was a central figure in the early Jerusalem church. For the first 30 years of Christianity, he was it. But nobody ever imagined that James might be the Messiah. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes him rather contemptuously, but echoing the language that people must have used of him as the brother of the so-called Messiah. Now this means that we can already rule out some very common suggestions. Many have proposed that the early disciples were so overwhelmed with grief at Jesus' death that they picked up the idea of resurrection from their surrounding culture and clung on to that. Maybe he's been raised from the dead, maybe, maybe, and then finally persuading themselves it was true, and then going out and telling people that it was true. Some have suggested that the earliest, Christians, the earliest Christians believed that after his death Jesus had been exalted to heaven and then they gradually started to speak about resurrection because of that. Or that they had a sense that they had to carry on his mission to bring in God's kingdom and that that made them say he was raised from the dead. But would that make any sense? We can test it out with a little thought experiment. In AD 70... 40 years after Jesus' death, the Romans conquered Jerusalem and they led thousands of Jews captive back to Rome, back including the man they regarded as the king of the Jews, the leader of the Jewish revolt, a man called Simon Bargiora. Simon was led into Rome at the back of Titus' triumphal procession. And at the end of the spectacle, As everyone knew was going to happen, the king, the rebel king, the leader of the enemy was flogged and executed. Now, supposing we imagine a few Jewish revolutionaries three days or three weeks afterwards. Somehow they've managed to escape being killed themselves and they're in hiding. And one says, you know, I think Simon really was the Messiah and I think he still is. And the others are puzzled. Of course he isn't. The Romans got him. They killed him. That's what they do to people. If you want a Messiah, you better find another one. Ah, says the first, but I think he's been raised from the dead. What do you mean, his friends ask. He's dead and buried. Oh, no, replies the first. I believe he's been exalted to heaven. The others look very puzzled. All the righteous martyrs, all those who have died for their faith, of course they're in heaven with God. Everybody knows that. The souls of the righteous are in the hands of God and there shall no torment touch them. Famous Jewish text. That doesn't mean they've already been raised from the dead. It means they will be one day. Resurrection isn't something that happens to one person in the middle of history no replies the first you don't understand I've had a strong sense of God's love surrounding me I've found God forgiving me for running away I have felt my heart strangely warmed what's more last night I really thought that Simon was there with me and the others interrupt and they're now angry we can all have visions plenty of people dream about recently dead friends or family members sometimes that's very vivid that doesn't mean they've been raised from the dead It certainly doesn't mean that one of them is the Messiah. And if your heart has been warmed, then for goodness sake, sing a psalm. Don't make wild claims about a dead man. That is what they would have said to anyone offering the kind of statement which according to the revisionists, the skeptics, somebody must have come up with at the beginning as the beginning of the idea of Jesus' resurrection. But this solution isn't just incredible, it's historically impossible. Had anyone said any of those things that revisionists have suggested, some such conversation as I've just given you would have ensued. A little bit of disciplined historical imagination is all it takes to blow away enormous piles of so called historical criticism. What is more, to round off this seventh mutation from within the Jewish belief that I've just done a riff out of the side of, because of the early Christian belief in Jesus as Messiah, we find the development of the very early belief that Jesus was Lord and that therefore Caesar wasn't. That's a whole other topic for another occasion. But already in Paul, the resurrection both of Jesus and then in the future of all his people is the foundation of the Christian stance of allegiance to a different king, a different Lord. Death is the last weapon of the tyrant. The point of the resurrection, despite much misunderstanding, is that death has been defeated. The tyrant's last weapon has been trumped. Resurrection is not the redescription of death, it is the overthrow of death. And with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on their ability to deal in death. Despite the sneers and slurs of some contemporary scholars, it was those who believed in the bodily resurrection who were thrown to the lions and burnt at the stake. Resurrection was never a way of settling down and becoming respectable, The Pharisees could have told you that. Resurrection was always bound to get you into trouble, and it regularly did. So I have now noted seven major mutations within the Jewish resurrection belief, each of which became central within the Christianity of the first two centuries. The early Christian belief in resurrection remains emphatically on the map of first century Judaism rather than paganism, but from within Judaism, it has opened up a whole new way, unprecedented, of seeing everything. And this demands a historical explanation. Why did the early Christians modify the Jewish resurrection language in these seven ways so consistently? When we ask them, they of course reply that they did it because of what happened to Jesus. And this projects us on into the next part of the lecture, which is, of course, to ask, so what must we then say about the very strange stories which they tell about that first Easter day? When we plunge into the stories of the first Easter day, the accounts that we find in the closing chapters of the four canonical gospels, we find that the stories of Easter don't
0: fit. All right, I'm just gonna pause it there and uh, take your pulse, make sure you're still alive.
1: Lights, three, two, one.
0: (laughs) All right, does anybody get, understand, why it's useful to talk about these seven things? What's the point? (coughs) Why are we spending all this time? Yeah, They're different from the mainstream beliefs that Christianity is Uh based off of. Why is that significant? Because (laughs) how would they change their belief if it didn't happen? Ah, very good, Jesse. So, if you have this huge shift in how people think about a subject, such as resurrection, you need some sort of historical explanation for it. What is the best historical explanation for a sevenfold mutation about bodily resurrection that they saw a bodily resurrection and because they saw one it took all the different ideas that were out there away and now they had a clear view that it was a centrally a transformed physical body why do they think it was a transformed physical body because Jesus body was out of the tomb right it was gone and it was transformed Right, it was different, but it was the same. Right, it used up the matter, but at the same time had some significant upgrades. Um, they they uh, start thinking of the resurrection in at least two stages. That there's the first resurrection of Christ, and then there's a resurrection for other people. And they start thinking that resurrection should somehow affect how they live. That somehow or other, the age to come has opened up into our present our present age, such that we're able to live out the future now in the power of the Spirit. And they start making converts, and they're baptizing people, and they're saying, you were buried with him in baptism. You participate in his death through baptism, and you're raised up to walk in the newness of life, as if you are raised to, to to live a new life, just like he was raised. And then they constantly point to the resurrection as evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Why are they doing all these things? Because they actually saw him. There was an actual, in in other words, if you look at history and there's a huge hole, the shape of the resurrection of Jesus, the best hypothesis that explains the hole is that there was a resurrection of Jesus. Otherwise, you have to come up with an alternative theory. And what are some of those alternative theories? The ones we did? Yeah. Stolen body. Stolen body, right? He didn't die. He didn't really die. Hmm. Okay. I call that the swoon Hallucinations. theory. Hallucinations? Yep. Identical twin. No. Okay. That's not even, don't <laughs> even right. that. Don't even give it value. Twin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I call that the swoon theory. Oh. All right. So let's consider these options just briefly. The stolen body. Why do you think it's not a good explanation that they just stole the body. Stole and would have found the body or thrown somewhere. Well what what motivation would they have for stealing the body because the woman's showing that Jesus is gone and they give evidence of the resurrection. Yeah. I have no motivation to steal the body. Yeah. Let's say they did steal the body, but what would their motivation possibly be to maybe start some new movement and get power, I mean money. Okay, get power, money and what's the other thing? People influence. power, influence, money, women.
1: I was thinking
0: about <laughs> people are motivated by you know there are only so many things that motivate a bunch of dudes and like the disciples um, and it's like well you know if you could if you could you know get some sort of benefit but you look at the writings of these people and what do you see in their writings? They write as if telling the truth is important to them. They write as if being honest and serving God are really significant things in their lives. They're not writing like you know 48 laws of power to help you to overcome your competitors and destroy them so that you can be the top kingpin that's not the that's not the gist of the books that they ended up writing right so I think it's very difficult to uh, sustain the hypothesis that they stole the body on some sort of motive of getting power what kind of power do you get in the beginning of the movement there is no power Hmm. these people are persecuted They're an illegal religion within the Roman Empire. They are persecuted by their own Jewish brothers, right? There's no power. Nobody has any power, and there's no there's no fame. It's not like they can even leave the house without fearing death, right? Uh, Be very difficult with two guards on duty too. Yeah. And a big stone. Right, right. And what about the guards on duty and all that sort of thing? Yeah. Even if you stole the body. How are you going to convince people if God is not with you? You know, because they, they were doing miracles too. How are you going to convince so many people not to start a small cult? But so many people. Uh-huh. That this, that this, it's the body's not there because it was resurrected by God. Right, it, right. What were you going to say, Denise? No. <coughs> Alex, what were you say? If then what? How does the appearances explain? Uh huh. You still have to explain away the appearances, right? So I guess we would say they lied about those. Well, yeah. Uh, all right. So then, uh, the next thing is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that when Jesus was on the cross, he swooned, he fainted. And in the coolness of the tomb, he revived. Woke up, looked around, went up to the stone, and in need of severe medical attention, somehow got that stone, rolled away, fought his way past the guards, and then limped over to the disciples' house, and was like, you gotta need water. And they're like, he's resurrected. All right, so what, okay. what would your comeback to the swoon theory be, or resuscitation theory? Um, it, would be, it would be immoral on his part to lie about that. It would be immoral, but let's say he was immoral. The mm-hmm. Romans are very good yeah. at killing people. Hold on, Alex had her hand he, up. They hurt him too bad. There's no way he could have, like, Uh uh-huh. that. So you're saying they hurt him too bad. Josiah says the Romans are very good at killing people. Look, if a Roman soldier fails at a crucifixion such that the person they're supposed to execute survives, do you know what the consequence would be? They die sure. Yeah. They are going to be the next ones up to bat. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's that serious. You know, this person has the death penalty. You're the soldier responsible for killing him. We even know from the accounts, the historical accounts, that they made sure. Didn't they make sure? They're like, he looks like he's dead. Give me a spear. <laughs> right. They make sure because they're professional executioners. That's their job. They, they beat him up really too much for him to get up and just, yeah, just, so just slim, wake up. so <laughs> slim. There's no way, like one of us, if one of us did that. Would be dead. There's no right, right, and then and then how do we get this whole belief in the resurrection if Jesus isn't resurrected? He's just sort of like wounded really badly, <laughs> you know what I mean, it's just totally different, that looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? you wouldn't have a hope of resurrection, if that's what resurrection meant, was getting the tar beaten out of you, um, all right, hallucination, how, how are you going to argue back on hallucination, if somebody says, oh, they just, they were really stressed out, they're having visions, they hallucinated, they're like, is that Jesus, I think I see Jesus, and then everyone else looks, and he's gone, it's like, no, I saw him, I saw him, right, it's very difficult for a whole bunch of people
1: like that to have the same hallucination along with somebody else that persecuted the church to have a hallucination about them, which would be Paul.
0: Yeah, so you have two points there. One is that it's very unlikely that multiple groups of people would have shared hallucinations, right? And when we look at the resurrection appearances, which the list is in 1 Corinthians 15, right? You appear to Peter and then all these different people. I think you appear to the women first, Right. It's really hard to imagine hallucinations occurring to so many different people, right? Um, may- maybe like Dan has hallucinations, but maybe Dan's always kind of had a screw loose. And it's like <laughs> eh, I can see Dan having hallucinations, but like what about when he's in the class with everyone else and we all see a hallucination at the same time, right? And then another instance, somebody's over here and they're fishing and they're like, I saw Jesus too, you know. And he says the you know cast your net on the other side, right? That whole thing. So. The way hallucinations work psychologically is you project, it's like a dream, right? Like when you have a dream, you don't generate new ideas. In your dreams, what your brain does is it sort of like combines things that you already know, right? So nobody's gonna hallucinate a new idea that they hadn't thought of before. And so if their belief about dead people was that dead people are asleep or that you know, maybe Jesus got exalted to the right hand of God, something like that, that's what they would have hallucinated. Nobody's going to hallucinate a resurrected Jesus before the common resurrection of everyone else because the d- idea didn't exist until they had the idea having seen him. And you look at the resurrection accounts, they are the worst Christians. Nobody <laughs> believes them. They come back, they're like, I saw Jesus, they're like, you women are crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. You grieve so hard or whatever. And then the guy from Emmaus comes back, I saw Jesus, they're all like, you're crazy. And then Jesus shows up to all of them. And, and then yeah, and Thomas crazy. isn't there, right? And Thomas is like, you're all crazy, mm-hmm. right? Until I stick my hand in his side, I'm not, they're all terrible believers. Why would you write it that way if, it, if you were just making it up? You would, you would be like, and we waited outside the tomb until the angels came and rolled the stone away <laughs> right? That's how you would be if you were making it up. You'd be like, and we were right there, and we hugged him. We were like, Jesus, we never doubted you, right? But in reality, they all doubted him. Peter denies him. They all run away. There's no, you know, who's there at the crucifixion? You've got his mom. You've got a few of the the women like Mary uh, Magdalene, and you've got brother John, right? Where's everyone else? Where are the 12, right? Judas is out freaking out. Peter's out crying. Right? I mean they're just they're a total mess. Nobody believes the resurrection is going to happen. And then when it does, they're shocked. That's strong reason to think it wasn't just some sort of hallucination idea. It was a brand new idea that really jolted them and generated a shift in their beliefs that wasn't there already. And how would you debunk the twin theory? twin hypothesis. The term we we typically use to debunk this and probably what Dr. Craig used was ad hoc, which is a Latin phrase meaning for this. In other words, it's just something that somebody made up for this, in other words, to prove this point. There isn't a historical uh, source that generates that. It's something that somebody just concocted for this explanation. You could say there were UFOs that came, and some alien hit him with like this ray gun, and brought him back. You know, you could make up any kind of ad hoc theory you want. They do say that, by the way, on the History Channel. There you go, on the History Channel. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, or yeah, we could throw aliens in with the twin. <laughs> <laughs> right. There can be any kind mm. of theories that you concoct, make up. In order to explain something, Jesus was, cloned. Jesus was cloned. There you go. Somebody had a time machine. Whatever. You can make up all kinds of things, but you have no sources backing that up. That's you making up things. Right? And we have to make a difference, a distinction between when people make up stuff and when we're doing real history. Okay? Um, so that's some stuff on this. Why do you think resurrection is so important? It's, it's a good question.
1: <laughs> it's a key foundational part of our belief.
0: Yeah. I want to say really two things about that. The first of which is that according to the apostle Paul, basically our faith stands or falls on resurrection. This is 1 Corinthians 15:13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then what? Our preaching is vain. Our preaching is dumb. It's empty. It's futile. And your faith also is vain empty or futile, right? Look, if there's no resurrection, what are we doing here, people? Right? That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he says it again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Worthless. And you're still in your sins. And why are we Christians? If he's not raised from the dead, if he's still moldering away in some tomb somewhere, right? And so Christianity stands or falls on resurrection. Whether or not you believe The Bible is inspired by God is not a requirement for salvation. The gospel message is central to the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is raised from the dead, but you, let's say you believe that, but you don't believe the rest of the the Bible, or you you have weird ideas about the rest of the Bible, but you still believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You still believe in the kingdom to come. You still believe he died for your sins. Those three things. You're still probably going to be all right on judgment day because that's the gospel. You see what I'm saying? So it's a minimalist approach to talking to somebody about the faith. You don't have to worry about the talking donkey. Whatever. Do you believe he was raised from the dead? Because whether that the donkey talked or there's some other explanation, whatever, that isn't significant for salvation, right? It might be significant for the book of Numbers, but it's not necessarily significant for salvation. Salvation is more streamlined, more limited, and it's all based on this resurrection thing. And so that's why I put resurrection before I get into the Bible. I know that Chad Meister puts the Bible and then resurrection as a higher step on the triangle. But I'm going to go in the opposite way. I'm going to be like, look, whether or not we can convince somebody of the whole Bible or not, which I think you can totally, I would start with the resurrection. Always start with the resurrection if you're talking to a skeptic. I was going to say, obviously, your approach would probably be more true because of like getting out to the Gentiles. I would say, eighty percent of the Gentiles didn't know Jewish scripture. Like they didn't know the story of the talking about before Paul came up to him and was like, "Hey," or Luke or whoever came up to him and was like, "Hey." This
1: guy rose from the bed and they were going. well, what about the talking?" They don't, ask, they don't ask that question. <laughs> right. It's wow, really? Let me, like, how do you know this?
0: And That's look, uh, just to be clear, on the talking donkey subject, huh. if there is a God, and He's powerful enough to make a universe, He could make a donkey talk, or a chipmunk, or this chair. He's God. You know what I'm saying? It's probably not that difficult for Him to do. So. I don't really stress about the donkey. I was just using that as an illustration. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know any, what I mean? Anything, like right. You don't have to teach about Gideon's fleece. Right, Gideon's fleece. Right 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 right, 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 yeah. just right, right, right. Yeah, right. Look, this is the way I go about it. I say, look, if Jesus is raised from the dead, if, if, you know, that's obviously a very unusual thing to happen because people die all the time and they don't rise three days later. They just don't do that. Dead people don't do that. They don't do it now and they didn't do it then. These were not stupid, superstitious people, right? They were doubters and skeptics until they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And even then, they didn't believe. Even at the, look look at this, as late as uh, Jesus' ascension, right? This is Matthew 28, 16. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they bowed to him, or they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Look, even right till the very end when Jesus is giving them the Great Commission, there's still some people that are doubting, right? The only explanation for why these people ended up believing this stuff is that it actually happened. Otherwise, how are we just going to get this Christian movement started? <laughs> One other thing I wanted to mention, which and N.T. Wright mentioned this, is that he talks about there were other messianic movements and prophetic movements, right? He mentions Simon... Bar Giora, right? And uh, the revolution of 66. Well, there was another revolution in 132, and it was Simon Bar Kokhba who was declared to be the Messiah that time. Or there were other movements, Thutis or the Egyptian. Yeah, yeah, that guy too. And there was that Samaritan guy as well. You know, there are these different Jewish messianic movements or prophetic inspirational charismatic leader movements that happen on either side of Christ. And every time one of these guys... Rises up and says, I'm going to lead the people. What do the Romans do? And every time, what do the followers of that dead Messiah do? Two things, N.T. Wright says. Go home or get a new Messiah. That's what everybody does. You don't make up a story about how he's raised from the dead. That's just weird. Right? Unless it actually happened, and then it makes sense. Right, So that's a little bit of the logic of resurrection. So let's go ahead and take our quiz and a break. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth, wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.